welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable. Or maybe you're hopping on your Peloton. You can listen to me and Allie Love at the same time. I'm very okay with that because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and some brand new merch, including a quietly dignified Things Are Going Great For Me coffee mug. Perfect for your coffee in the mornings or your moonshine at night. We've also got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, and even a Things Are Going Great For Me safety mask, folks. So check them out and listen in comfort, style, and good health. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at Things Are Going Great For Me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from both our Season 1 and Season 2 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they're adjusting to life in our seemingly unending quarantine and how it's changing life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen. So if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're thrilled to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial Natural Spring Water, sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, tell your aunt about us, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. On this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. Today's first guest is Kevin Avery. Kevin is a comedian and Emmy-winning writer for his work on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He also served as head writer for Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. The two of them also had a wonderful podcast on Earwolf called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, Period. Kevin currently writes for the Fox animated series The Great North. He actually found our podcast, which is one of the coolest and unforeseen things to happen as we were making this series, that we would get to meet exciting industry people as a result of this. I'm thrilled he joined me in this chat. I'll be speaking with Kevin in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Hannah Dickinson. Hannah is a comedian and a breakout star of Comedy Central's inaugural Creators Program, where she was creating sketch videos, doing stand-up spots, and hosting the Comedy Central roast Red Carpets. Comedy Central also produced her Snapchat series Get Money, a satire of a gig economy worker. Hannah's debut half-hour comedy special is on Epix's Unexpected Sets series. Stick around for her interview. You're not going to want to miss it. One quick note. I recorded my segment with Winston yesterday, and as I'm recording this part, news has just broke that actor Michael K. Williams has died. A veteran actor from such series as The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, and Lovecraft Country, he brought an unyielding authenticity and a quiet intensity to his roles. Mr. Williams was truly one of the best of us as actors. This is a heartbreaking loss. I wish his family and all his loved ones well, and may he rest in peace. So, this week is the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's interesting is because uh, you and I talked a little bit about whether we would speak about this. It was the Comedy Central roast that happened after 9-11 where Gilbert Godfrey got up and did The Aristocrats, mm-hmm. if I remember this correctly. And, you know, for anyone, do you, you know what The Aristocrats is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the uh, you say a bunch of vulgar stuff and you say, what's well, the show called? The Aristocrats. That's right. It's a joke format that allows for anybody to plug in the most dirty, vile, mm-hmm. vulgar stuff. And when he got up and did that, that was one of these moments that allowed a, 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 viewers to, to have a real cathartic laugh after so much um, sadness that was uh, mm-hmm. preceding it. Um, so, you know, we are going to talk about it a little bit. We can talk about it with humor and uh, hopefully as a way of, uh, of healing, which I think humor yeah. does, is supposed to do. Yeah, I want to be the bitingly irreverent 9-11 commentator. <laughs> what was, do you remember, what was that day like for you? I was in uh, high school, and uh, I remember because we were, like, in, I was in, like, a computer class. So, like, we actually were some of the first people in the school to see it because, like, some, it was, like, on the internet. And then there was an assembly, and then the rest of the school day was at, was just every class because we only had four classes a day. We had like a block schedule, so my next three classes or whatever were all uh, just watching TV, basically. Now you were in Oklahoma, right? Yep. Let me ask you a question. Okay. So, because there was the 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 most uh, the last sort of major event that I can that re- reminds me of this mm-hmm. was happened in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, the the second largest terrorist event in American history is in my state. Uh, were, yeah. were, how old How old were you when that happened? When that happened, I believe I was twelve uh, or thirteen when Oklahoma City bombing happened. And no, I think I was. No, I think I was twelve. You were in Tulsa, is that right? Yeah, is I was right? in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And what is that? Uh, what is that? I mean, are you thirty minutes away? Is that? I, about, I don't know. That's an state hour at and all. a half. It's about ninety okay. miles. Um, it's not close, but it's not far. It's like not. I mean, you go you go to Oklahoma City for like big field trips and stuff, and it's the only other big city. So it's it's the of the two cities that are cities that those are them. So yeah. Did you witness? Because I know. So so for me, I was in New York City on nine mm-hmm. eleven. I was a sophomore in college, and um, I heard the, one of the planes coming down Fifth Avenue. I actually mm. woke up to the sound of a low-flying plane, fell back asleep, and then woke up again to the sound of sirens. Jesus when I went Christ. to my window, I looked down Fifth Avenue past Washington Square Park. I was up on a maybe the fifth floor of a building on Fifth Avenue in my my dorm, and I could see the Twin Towers, and I could see the uh, an, an enormous hole in the first building. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Subsequently, our phone lines all got cut. Um, I believe internet was still working for, for, I think I was still emailing with people. One of the things that I saw during that week was this amazing um, community that came together in New York City. People, perfect strangers, supporting each other, Mm -hmm. getting online to give blood, uh, other people going to get water to give to the people who were online to donate blood. uh, people helping to uh, there was it was one of these uh, the, one of the outcomes of this horrible tragedy that yeah. was seeing people of all backgrounds uh, act uh, like one family. Mm-hmm. What did you was there that kind of sense of community where you were in the Oklahoma <laughs> City bombing? 
Uh, and the Oklahoma City bomb, it was a very different, you know, it's a completely different event. And, like, at such a different scale. And I think um, I think because it was, uh, you know, uh, a white guy who did it and a domestic terrorist, um, the response yep. was very different. You know, like, I don't I do remember, like, and, and there's been big natural disasters. Like, we have pretty bad tornadoes in Oklahoma. So there are definitely those times where, like, people do bond together and, like, you know, rally around a big cause. The difference is, is though, like, um, you know, there's not many cities that everyone experiences everyone every day the way they do in New York. So, like, like that city, every you are constantly have everyone on top of you. So it is a very mm-hmm. different thing yeah. when, uh, when, when, when people are spread out. Yeah, when there's when they're spread out, like when people, yeah, people, like, like you know, if you were in you were in New York that day, like you can't escape that. Right. Like, I mean, you could walk across a bridge or through a tunnel, but like you're stuck, pretty much stuck there. Whereas like in Oklahoma, like most people live, you know, over the horizon from where the stuff would happen. So like there is a break there, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I did not witness that. And I had, I will say even with nine 11, I, uh, that your experience and my experience were very, very different. Um, being in Oklahoma, you know, it's a different thing. I'll tell you, like, some of the highlights were that of that following week were, mm-hmm. or th- when I when I say highlight, I just mean yeah, these things that double, stuck let's out. Let's clarify that. Yes. So the, like, one day, I remember, like, one day I was on University Place, which is uh, down in sort of around the 14th Street area, mm-hmm. and uh, I was just going to get some groceries, and all of a sudden I remember seeing Bill Clinton, a few people in front of me, just in the middle of the road, with a couple of cops with him. And um, he, I guess, had flown in from, I think it was Australia. Had He'd gotten flight clearance uh, mm-hmm. from the White House to come back to the U.S., came to New York City. He, he stood on 14th Street and walked, or University Place, walked all the way downtown. So as soon as I saw him, everybody saw him. And, like, mm-hmm. zzz, were all around him as he sort of walked downtown. I remember that. They opened up the movie theaters, for everyone to go see a movie for free, which was oh wow, a nice thing to do, yeah. And we got and it was free popcorn and all of that sort of stuff. And That's... you know, that was a cool thing. And I remember the yeah. movie that we saw. I think it was a John Favreau movie called Made. Do you remember this movie? Mm-hmm. Was it called yeah, Made? I remember this. It was like Favreau. Yeah, it, was and and, it was yeah, it was like their their mobster movie. It was like a follow up to Swingers, kind of. Yeah, P Diddy yeah. was in it. What's P yeah. Diddy going by now? love right i'm gonna say sean combs i'm just gonna okay. say sean combs Fair enough. that feels safe right um there was a lot of paranoia mm-hmm. my roommates and i were making plans about like how we were gonna get out of the city. i had one buddy from stanford mm-hmm. connecticut who was like yo my buddy is gonna like meet us at the george washington bridge and he's gonna get us out of here and there was that kind of yeah. worry about like what is gonna what happen might come next. what happens next yeah, yeah. And now we've uh, been in this period of like COVID. And I think mm-hmm. like, you know, one of the things uh, Ira and I were talking about this a little off mic was that, you know, the, the, the we seem to be having these kinds of uh, once in a lifetime events now more often. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't think we have had much chance to do with in terms of COVID is have that same kind of collective response in terms of the people that we've lost. Would you agree? it's an unfortunate thing where this is it's spread out over such an amount of time that it's hard for us to wrap our heads around like, Oh, what's actually happening. Um, yeah. Which is frustrating. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 
there's no there, it feels like it's very hard to like get your your arms around like what is ha- because it's ongoing yeah. it's not over yet yeah maybe that's yeah, part of it it's not yeah, over we're still yet. in the middle of it yeah. yeah we're still in the middle of it and also even like you know um and like but we're and also we're seeing the same things we saw in 9-11 in real time now which is like immediately people you know claiming it was in like like the conspiracy theories start flowing conspiracy and then, theories. but all that stuff is even faster now because we have social media to ramp it up and um yeah and it does feel like it's happening a lot i've been thinking about that like and i don't think i think our our intuition is to go oh well these huge life event these huge world events can't be happening this often it must be i'm experiencing them differently but unfortunately i think we're actually kind of in a very bad time of turmoil where there's huge thing like we've lived through essentially a depression <laughs> Yep. And the worst attack on U.S. soil in history. Uh, yeah. And and that's like just the pat. That's just that's not even the fir- like there's that's just an and a pandemic. And like like it is every week and like and uh, two different hurricanes that put New Orleans uh, hurricanes every of, year. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah bat, like record record set, setting New, hurricanes every year. New Jersey. Yeah. Fires fires that are worse than they've ever been. Um, and more podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what I <laughs> want to see is, you know, of podcasts. Yeah, murders and ice cream sales go together. I want to see the, uh, 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 natural disasters and podcasts graph. <laughs> Wait a minute. What is ice cream <laughs> and murders? About this? No. There's a correlation between ice cream sales and murders. Get and the it's fuck because out of here. it's because more people kill each other in the summer. So if you look at like it's a weird correlation, but it is accurate that like the more ice cream is sold, the more murders there are going to be. <laughs> They're not related, but that is a thing. Oh my god, that's the laugh that yeah. I needed in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's so funny. Um, so Kevin Avery mm-hmm. found our podcast, which is the best thing that could ever happen for us is that serious industry people start finding us we madison shepherd's interview is coming up in a few episodes she found us online as well um i really liked kevin's interview he's a very funny guy and a brilliant man and um uh also i just kind of like want to be friends with this guy no he's, he's just yeah. he's just a, he's just he's just i feel like we clicked into a a place on this interview that felt very familiar mm-hmm uh, it, it, one of those people that <laughs> I felt like immediately like, oh, this dude is like, this guy feels like a best friend right away. And I'm yeah, sure yeah. that he didn't feel that way at all. Yep, I'm sure yep. that he would not feel that way if I asked him that question. Yeah, yeah. But he was just brave delight- of you to say that. Brave of you to say this on a public medium. I just really like the guy. Yeah, and he yeah. was, he was, uh, he's just a, a delightful dude and a, yeah. fa- a font of knowledge mm-hmm. about yep. comedy and uh, writing for television. And um, uh, it was very, very cool that he found us and that uh, we ended up having such a great chat. It was great. All right, folks, you've been very patient with us. Without further ado, here now is the brilliant and funny, the seductive Kevin Avery. That series has been pretty brutal. That's that's with the the crown. I mean, it's pretty well. It's some some of them make her look good, I suppose. I just started watching it. 
So, oh yeah. Well, I I've, I just finished the first season. Okay. I'm I'm excited to go back. Um, she looks yeah she looks very nice in the first season. She looks very um, you know whatever it's yeah she there's a very her her struggles very apparent and what she's going through. You you sympathize with her. And yeah. I don't think I've ever found myself sympathizing with the Queen of England before. No. no. So it's like, oh, okay, I see. It's an interesting sort of look at, oh, this is why, I guess this is why she is how she is now. And I don't even know how she yeah. is now. I don't know her. I have I no idea. Her. No. Yeah. I mean, she, I was born in the UK. I was adopted out of the UK by a couple of American folks. And, okay. um, we also, I lived there on and off and including high school just was a coincidence. It was that right. my dad was working over in the UK on, for a couple of different companies and, mm. um, over the years. And, uh, when I was there, particularly for those high school years, um, the vibe, the vibe was that <laughs> it was, it was, it was fuck the Royal family for, a, yeah. for the most part. It was that they, what the, you know, the fuck do they fucking do for us? And that, you know, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, Why are we yeah. paying all the fucking taxes and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, it's weird. You slip into that accent seamlessly. It's, it's impressive. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Of... Cause you, you live there, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a little I was getting, sur- I was getting served at the bar at age 14 over there. Jesus, it was great. What were you drinking? What do you drink at fourteen? What do you? What's your poison? Fourteen. <laughs> it was Guinness exclusively. Really? Well, I'm half Irish, and so and I'm when you're adopted, there's a thing you do. The things that are part of who you are become very important to you. Right, right. To a weird level. So mm-hmm. for the Irish side, I was uh, yeah, it was Guinness exclusively, and I don't so much anymore, but I still. It's still my probably my top. But at fourteen, you developed a specific. You decided, you put this on yourself. I I'm gonna have this allegiance to this beer. Sure. Were were yeah. you like that with anything else in your life? Oh yeah. My other really half of my heritage is Middle Eastern, and so little things like I had, a, you know, seeing that film Aladdin was very important to me when I was a kid and I had a journal that I kept at, Mm. I don't know when this was, I guess this was like middle school area. Yeah. And I, I addressed it, my journal entries to, um, Ali. It was the character that I used to address each journal entry, which I think was his sort of moniker, Prince Ali. I didn't write like dear Aladdin, but that Ali was important to me. (laughs) Right. Wow. Um, now, do you see what I've done here? I you have actually around, flipped you? it around and I started asking you questions. Yeah. I said, you know what? I'll play his game. I will play his game. And here we are. Welcome oh, to the man. podcast. Well, you're so sed- you're seductive in your, uh, you have a very seductive voice. Have, have you. you been told that? Um, I just had an argument with an ex-girlfriend yesterday about my voice. I think I sound ridiculous i mean that's not news everyone thinks they sound weird <laughs> no, you don't yeah, <clears throat> oh, sure. I, yeah. I, I i think i sound like a dork um she said that i have a very nice voice so i don't think she used the word seductive yeah. i don't think anyone's ever used the word seductive to describe my voice but i've been told <laughs> you're, you're, i have you're welcome a nice voice <laughs> thank you oh my <laughs>
Um, all right, I got to get back on on, on our <laughs> plan here. Sorry, I threw you off. I'm, I didn't mean to do that. I, no, it's been wonderful. Or and, did I? Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess, you know, I've been doing this. Uh, you are my first interview of our second season. Oh, nice. Wow, look mm-hmm. at that. I feel, thank you. And, you know, one of the things that we were doing last season is I was asking folks these questions a little bit about how are you dealing with uh, the pandemic, which was Mm -hmm. when we started the podcast, we didn't plan on it. We didn't start it in the pandemic, but we start we started only about a month or a couple months before, I think, January of last year, getting things organized. And then our first interview happened, I think, in March when things had just locked down. So it became a pandemic podcast um for that first season and here we are in a second season we're still we're still in it so i you know one of the things i was asking folks and i'll ask you is uh how are you how are you you doing with your lockdown um it's been a it's been a roller coaster a little bit um you know if you'd asked me this when the when the the first few months i would have been like you know what i'm fine i am good (laughs) yeah i you know I'm hanging out here by myself. I have, I have, um, I'm, you know, lucky enough to have, um, space. And so, uh, and I have plenty of plenty to do here. It's funny because I, I moved back to Los Angeles from New York a few years ago. And in New York, I had, you know, it's New York and I was, I'm living in Manhattan in New York. So every, it's just, every place is small. It's either incredibly big or incredibly small, unless you're like in Brooklyn or, or you, you know, um, Queens or wherever. And so, um, yeah, so I can't imagine dealing with this in my place in the East Village. Um, so it's nice to be here in Los Angeles where, where though, where it's, we've become the epicenter. That's not so nice. Um, yeah. but yeah, I'm coping. You know, it's ups and downs. Like, at first, I was like, I don't get it. I don't see the problem. This is fine. And then little things started to happen, little little cracks in the uh, in the in the veneer uh, in the of my sanity, and um, yeah, that that was frustrating. And so now I'm just I don't know. I'm operating on this weird level where like I'm doing okay. I don't. I probably don't sleep as well as I should just because it's a weird world um but yeah do you fun. use any do you ever use anything to help you like i i'll i'll take like a melatonin to help me get to sleep I, do you do you do any of that i never did before and i started using these these like sleep chewable things that are um that well, they the ones i was using they were they were also like an immune thing they had melatonin they had elderberry and zinc and it, it was a whole bunch of stuff and now i'm just taking this straight sleep thing and it, it does not help it is still <laughs> oh it doesn't help at all really i don't here's the thing i've never been a person who who slept a lot i wake up early um just because just for, for work sometimes and I keep fisherman hours basically. And so, um, <laughs> I, so I might, I, for like in New York, I was going to bed pretty late. Um, and then still waking up at like six in the morning. I don't know if those are fisherman hours. I think those are Batman hours. Thank you. You're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I pre- and I, you have no idea how much I appreciate that. Um, out fighting crime, 
uh yeah that's what i yeah i was hoping doing the work of the city um but yeah so i was i was a person getting by on like at one point a friend asked me how much sleep i'm getting and i said four to six hours a night and he was like well you're gonna die and i was like thank you and that scared me straight and so i tried to do better when the pandemic started though i was like let i'm just gonna start going to bed i stopped drinking um like i i I pulled back on the alcohol that's that's incredible that's not what anyone is doing i'm just that's when i say anyone i mean that's not what i mean most normal people are, are are you know i get it i totally get it i you know i was just very it was like let me just make sure my immune system is good to go for the next few months so i stopped drinking oh, good for you i mean i drank a little bit but I, I i pulled back and um a lot and then uh and i decided i'm just gonna start going to bed at like 10 10 30 every night and man i got more sleep than i had ever gotten in my life it was oh it was God. insane i was like for three months I was like, this is beautiful. I'm just, I'm getting rest. And, uh, and then that all changed. How many hours of sleep do you think you're getting now? About now? No, now I'm back to like five to six, I would say. I think six on average. Um, but I, I wake up in the middle of the night once or twice and just, you know, like, Oh, what, what time is it? All right. And go back to bed. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sleeping very soundly. So you're a comedian uh, turned comedy writer for TV. Would you say that's that is fairly uh, yeah. That's I mean and, and I think when Emmy you do winner. comedy, you oh yes, that has happened as well. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. When you when you do with stand up, I think you can you fall into all these things. I mean, my initially I was my goal was I was pointed towards just being an actor. And and before I could really even touch down on on that, you know, chase after that, uh, it it was stand up comedy for me. That's mm-hmm. I just started doing that, and I did not look back. And with stand up, you know, you it's sort of like, well, what can I do while I'm also doing this? Um, and I think a lot of comics sort of pursue writing. Um, it just kind of goes hand in hand, comedy writing for TV yeah. or, or whatever. And so that's kind of what I fell into. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, I still love doing both. I love doing stand. I haven't done much stand up during the pandemic, obviously, but, um, I still love it. You've done probably a few of the, the zoom shows. I, I would assume I have done exactly one zoom show and then one, um, like a virtual, uh, reality of you know like i put on the oculus and i did did that and that wasn't even really a stand-up show wait a minute is this the jenny yang animal crossing i didn't do that i I just saw jenny this what's i saw her yesterday and we talked about it um and yeah she asked me about because i i brought it up and i was like oh yeah i want to you know we were talking about doing her show but it's, okay. I have not done All hers right. yet. But yes, I'm. It's. Uh, I read it's, about it. I don't know her personally, but I did read about it, and it sounded really exciting. Yeah, she's great. She's super funny, um, and uh, I've heard nothing but good things about these shows, and so I'm looking forward to doing it. So uh, yeah. 
So I was going to say, I think that, you know, people think that comedians spring up out of nowhere. They're born funny and then they go to their local comedy club. But I think that, you know, it's interesting what you're saying. And it was my theory, which was that uh, or I guess based a little bit on my uh, sort of looking a little bit into your story is that a lot of funny people start out in the arts doing community theater or even singing in their church. You know, you you started as a student of the arts, I think. Mm -hmm. You, you and I have something in common. We were both trained in dance. <laughs> Jesus, how much research did you do? Oh, uh, get ready, buddy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did, I, I did a little bit of that. Uh, that really threw me off. No one has ever, no one's ever attacked that before, my friend. That's what we do here. We, we, we yeah. ask the questions that nobody wants. <laughs> that are that are not interesting to anybody wow. except for, to me. Yeah, I did do some some dance, a little bit of uh when I was very young, it was like doing jazz and like a little bit of tap to um I I love dancing. And so um and then as I got older, it was you know, um uh I did all the all the ballroom stuff too. All the the I, I was fox trotting and and you know uh cha 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 and you know all that stuff waltzing all over the place but my thing was you know i was in like a, a like an actual like a dance crew like a hip-hop dance crew for a little bit and so that was a thing and yeah i did all that all that madness yeah. i did i did it in college mm -hmm. i had we had jazz tap and ballet right i liked i liked it a lot i'm not good at it you know i mm. i'm i'm pretty tall and i'm i sort of look like a fat green bean so i think like <laughs> you know like i was the look I, of a dancer yeah i mean my entire cumulative gpa came down because of my just because of my dance classes but it wasn't for lack <laughs> of trying i really yeah. tried and wow. liked it you know just it's just you know it's not my my forte um although i do think i dance well for my children when it's just us alone that's all that matters. And yeah, and that's all that matters to me. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, you did theater in college, is that correct? I went to Tuskegee University in Alabama, and the theater program was barely alive. They were not, they, you know, that school was there for engineering, veterinary medicine. They had a great architecture school, things like, you know, it was, it was a very, uh, as you know, black colleges go. It was a very black college. It was just get a job, get a trade, get a job. You know what I'm saying? Get out there. It wasn't. Okay. They were not really there for your artistic endeavors, and so it was the it was like the the theater program was called the Little Theater, and it was literally a little theater, like this tiny little box of a theater. Now, when you applied there, were you thinking in terms of developing an arts career were you thinking about something nope. else going into college i was thinking oh my parents said i gotta go to college and this is the first college that accepted me because my dad went to tuskegee so oh really? Uh, okay yeah so so you was, weren't thinking i gotta go to juilliard i gotta go to new york and try to get into juilliard or something like that no man i i really i was a terrible student all my academic career i just didn't like doing the work and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, went to this sort of one of those college prep schools. Um, I went to St. Francis high school 
and uh, in, in Mountain View, California. And so, you know, it was expected you're, you're going to go to college somewhere. And that was the first school that accepted me. So, you know, and I went down there and visited and my dad was very excited to show me around and the whole thing. And, and so that helped. And then, yeah, they accepted me and I was like, all right, great. I'm in. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that was <laughs> that was that. So I went there and majored in English. And uh, just because I'm like, well, I already speak the language. So that's a C at least. So <laughs> it's like, like, you got a leg up. Yeah. You know, so like, <laughs> I did the I did the same thing. That was my double major was in uh, was in uh, English literature for some yeah. reason. I thought it was I don't know why. So I thought I could get an easy double major out of it. So wow. that's why I did it. Yeah. See, I, yeah, you that's. I just kind of I went to college because I was expected to go to college, and okay. and I found this theater program, and and did that and and you know yeah. Well, I guess my question about the arts or uh, would be, you know, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on an arts recovery, at the moment because. And I've brought this up with some of the folks who've been on here who have performed on Broadway. Of course, Broadway is shut down now mm -hmm. into 2022. Uh, arts programs and grants are usually the first thing to go in terms of government subsidized programs. Uh, but arts and entertainment account for about, you know, I think these I have these figures that are about $877 billion, about 5% of the U.S. economy. And I think about uh, apparently about 3.8 million jobs. Um, any thoughts on how the arts are going to come back? Do you, where, where do you, uh, you, you work at the highest levels of the arts <laughs> and entertainment industry. Do you, how, how often do you think in terms of arts programs or do you think about other things? I mean, I, you know, Broadway, I don't know. It, it worries me, but it doesn't worry me because something like that, I feel like there's always a need for it. This stuff isn't going away. It's like people talk about, well, the movie theaters, we're all we're going to lose all the movie theaters mm -hmm. and we're not. Right. I think some of these right. corporations are going to are going to go under and that's unfortunate. But new ones and maybe it's naive for me to think that new ones will be built in their place. No one's going to stop going to the movies like people. You can't stop people from doing what they as soon as you open the gate just a little. You just say people go running back to the things that they want to do and so i i think that's i think that's good um and it means that somehow some way these institutions whether it's broadway whether it's movie theaters whether it's stand-up comedy i think they're going to survive they're not they're not going anywhere so i do, you know but I, I do worry about the artists and the um and the folks in the crew and the production people all the people right who and the 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 people who work at the theaters and you know who work to bring you this entertainment um you know of course i worry about them in the now you know because they're not a corporation they right. you know and so um that's the that's the scary thing um but i you know i like everybody hope to see it back sooner than later it's a there's something about broadway that's a real bummer there's something about yeah. that that just is like uh that just really sucks you know it's vulnerable it's a vulnerable yeah. industry the real estate 
spend on Broadway is incredibly high and yeah. um, the performers get paid a barely a living wage. Yeah. In order for it to, as the producers say, in order to, to make it work, but it is where so many, I think people out in Hollywood come from in terms, not just the actors, but the writers. I mean, it used to be, I think that, you know, Aaron, if it was Aaron Sorkin, he would end up writing movies for in Hollywood uh-huh. back in the nineties. And I think sort of then after the, these days, it's more like, um, uh, I'm thinking of like Elizabeth Merriweather came out of the theater in New York and then does, you know, goes into television in, in mm-hmm. Hollywood and things like that. So yeah, yeah it, it's the, I think there was an article out that said like, this is sort of like the, I don't think they described it as the minor leagues, but it's sort of like, this is the, this is the farm to the farm team. Mm. Yeah. For Hollywood talent, or at least one of them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's frustrating to see, just even out here, you know, friends that I, I have who are who are already struggling to just get in the because that's what happens. You come out here or New York or whatever, and breaking in in this business, it really does rely for the most part unless you get very lucky or you you're related to somebody who is really willing to you know uh handle things for you but it relies on you kind of gambling everything to mm-hmm. to be successful and um and for and and part of that gamble is just getting by you know just getting that serving job or or you know whatever gig you can to sort of get living paycheck to paycheck and so um it's such a so something like this this pandemic and everything it's such a crazily crippling thing when you're just an actor who is uh or a comedian or a musician who is taking that bartending job because they're or that serving job because all right this is this is what I got to do, but I'm going to pull this off. And then here comes this pandemic and it derails everything. And that's, that's a super frustrating thing. And those are the people I worry about in this. You know, when you talk about the arts industry, it's the people who are, who are sort of steadily plowing through and determined to make it and then kind of derailed by, by this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now you, you uh, had your, one of your day jobs was working as a, technical writer for software a software company for user manuals for software is that right yes i did that for a long time (laughs) for a long time uh, how many well because you know one of the things i wanted to ask you is i think i had heard you say on on another podcast that you have started working as a writer uh still i think in the last is it about 10 years? You, you're sort of your, your TV writing career started to really happen. Like seven, seven, yeah, seven years, seven. Ago. Am I doing the math? Eight. I'll say. Okay. Eight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I basically got out of college and, or while I was in college, I think I, my parents, they got me a summer job working for, Oh, at, at the company my dad worked at. And it was just, it was some tech company in the you know in the Bay Area, and at they would do a summer program every every year for kids of the employees, and and then they stopped it, and they, my parents were like, well, you got to get a job, and they knew a guy 
who worked at this company called Silicon Graphics. And Silicon Graphics, their big claim to fame back in the day was that they created the computers that helped design the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park or some madness like cool. that. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. It's sure. And, and so, <laughs> so uh, no shade uh, on Silicon Graphics. <laughs> but, um, but so... So anyway, my parents knew somebody who worked at this company and they got me a job there. And the guy was like, I mean, you're an English major. We'll make you a technical writer. And I was like, hey, man, sure. And so that's just that was the job. And then upon graduating, I that was on my resume. And I was like, yeah, I'm a technical writer. And so I just sort of kept getting those jobs. Well, I hated it. And I. And I, yeah. I mean, like, I'm not shocked. I didn't know what. The, first of all, the first time I did it, I did nothing. When I was at Silicon Graphics, I did nothing. They would like cart me around to these meetings because they were working on some new product or whatever, and I was like, yeah, I'd sit there and nod my head. But I did nothing, and and that just carried on through the rest of my day jobs, is just taking these jobs and doing as little as possible, and keeping my head down. And, and just kind of, I would like, yeah, so I was, I was there to write like technical documentation for software and hardware, oh you know, and I didn't know anything about this stuff. I didn't know were anything you able about to do, Were you, did you find that you could listen to music while you did this or, or, or anything like that? Or, or yeah. did you have to have your full attention on what you were doing? Cause I, I, I hear that thing about doing as little as possible at your day job. I believe yeah. me, I understand. And I think, but I guess the question then is, uh, what I'm curious about is like, how much of your focus did it take to do that job? Because that job sounds like you can't, you're not, you shouldn't be screwing it up or. Oh no, I screwed it up. There, there no, no <laughs> focus, <did>? no focus. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I didn't do. So here's what would happen. Um, one of two things about three months in, they would, they would realize, oh, this guy he doesn't know what he's doing and they would let me go. But I was a contractor. I was always a contract except for once or twice when they actually hired me as an employee. But for the most part, they brought me on as a contractor, which is just a, a glorified temp. So I was technically never fired. They just, okay. their contract would run out and they wouldn't renew it. Or they'd be like, you know what? We've had enough. And they would send me on my way. And, and so, but in such a short time, that's a job I could just leave off my resume until I got the yeah. next job. You know, they well, so I see you haven't been, you, were, you got this gap for three, four months. What were you doing? Oh, I, you know, I was traveling and just took a break for, for whatever. So then they, I would just get another job doing the same thing. And if they didn't realize that I was trash, they would, <laughs> they would be, it, the opposite would happen. They, we love this guy. Oh, he's great. And I don't know why they ever thought that. But, you know, they some jobs kept me for, for months and a, a year or two even. And, I mean, I just did. I got, I got by. I did just enough to get by. But I didn't. I was listening to music. I would leave middle of the day and go to the movies. Just like. No. Really? Oh, oh, amazing. Dude, I. Because I just took on as little responsibility as possible. If no one needs you. They're not looking for you. That was my philosophy. And so I would just, I'd get in, I'd get in earlier and then um, just kind of make myself visible 
And then after a certain time, I would dip out. <laughs> and then I would come visible. back. When what did, the, so I got to ask, what does that mean? When you're making your, does that mean you go by the little like cafeteria or a little, little snack area and be like, what's say what's up to a few people. And then just walk around the off? cubicles. You just kind of, dip it, you know, like you could leave for a while. This is what this, I would regularly do this. You like leave for a while, go to, I would go to a, a, a bookstore or something or go, you know, listen to go, go to like a music store or something and, and then come back after two, three hours and then just drop in on somebody and, and just say the most inane matter of fact shit. Like, and what are they going to start putting Mountain Dews back in the vending machine? Yeah, whatever. And then move on. And it's like, you were never gone. They've yeah, he's got a point. And then they just keep going. And uh, yeah, I did that. You would do like, it feels like, like stormtrooper background talk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, when these uh, T-15s go, <laughs> like, you know, it was just, I got to find more of these power converters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, but I, man, I hated it. It just, cause look, I know people who do it and they're good at it and more power to them. Um, any kind of office job. It just was not for me. And so, but it it just felt so demoralizing because, you know, when you're good at a thing, you're good at a thing and it feels good. Um, Sure. But when you're not. (laughs) I say that like I know that (laughs) intrinsically. I think I'm good at one or two things. But you know what? You know what you like to do. I know what what I'm better at. at. And what you. Yeah. But but like I I just regularly felt like the dumbest guy in the room. And I'm like, I know I'm not an idiot. But here, here I am, an idiot in this room for the people who all know what they're talking about and all know what they're doing. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I don't, I don't know what this is. You know, and it just, I did it for years, and and I, I just, how did so so that must have been demoralizing. Then I would imagine, in terms of your self confidence, did you, did you? There must have been a time, I guess, when you thought, like, I know you were doing comedy at the same time, and yeah. I think you had said that you were, you would be able to in between gigging you could take off and do like a a tour maybe a comedy tour and that sort of thing and were you over doing regular spots at places like the because you were up in san francisco area yeah 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 and i did doing some spots over at the punchline and places like that yeah yeah so i mean i would do the the day job i would leave around four o'clock because i would get in early so that i could get in my eight hours and then be out by four and at one place i worked it was like I would I woke I was waking up so early driving to this job getting there by like somehow six seven o'clock maybe six thirty seven I would quote unquote work through lunch and then I could leave at like two or three so I kind of had an afternoon mm-hmm. and then I'd go back to San Francisco and yeah do spots do comedy spots at night or when I was in L A you know I eventually moved to L A and was and was doing those jobs here for a little bit and same same deal but yeah because they're contract jobs i could be like well i'm i'm not going to be in this week i have to go to um indianapolis to do crackers well i wouldn't tell them i i usually would not tell them that i did stand-up comedy they don't want to hear that yeah i do i do a little bit of that i have done in my life where mm-hmm. I, I just keep it so i worked at a restaurant for three years and i let them call me by my first name the entire time which is jonathan mm. and they i just never i never corrected him i got to a point where i was like i need them to know that and i need them to know me as somebody else other than yeah 
what I go by to my in my career in arts and you know just so I know that like if I end up at this restaurant uh-huh. and I never make it then I deserve to be <laughs> someone I I will be forever uh fated to be this other person well I will tell you something they so the last day job that I had before I got my first TV writing job I was working at Yahoo here in Burbank um hmm. And well, not here in Burbank, but in Burbank, nearby in Burbank. And um, I look, I've done this for so I've done it for so long, just working at these companies that you dream of the day that you just get to give walk away and throw the finger up and be like, so long day job, never again. And I walked out of those doors like I'm never coming back to this place as long as I live. And um, cut to, you know, seven years later, because I've been at the Great North for a, a year and a half, seven, six and a half years later, whatever. I, um, I'm going in for my meeting to meet the executive producers for the first time. And I'm looking at this address and I'm like, why does this sound familiar? Yeah, I get my car, I head on over there and I'm following the GPS and I'm like, I've been here before. This is oh, that's the 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 little whatever it is place. And I and I'm like, oh my god, I used to. This is where Yahoo worked. This is wow. Yahoo's near here. This is where I work. But where am I going? And then I turned into the parking lot and realized I'm going back to Yahoo. And I huh. I realized we're working in the same exact building. I'm a floor down from where I used to work where I worked for two years, I think, at, at Yahoo. And I, I walked into my meeting. This is the first time I've, I've met these, these ladies. And I, I, I mean, I was just, I was genu- genuinely just like shocked. And I'm looking, I'm in the lobby waiting like, what the, what is, and I'm talking to the receptionist. How long have you guys been here? Like, this is where I, I used to get coffee and, and my office was, or my cubicle was just a couple of, I was freaked out. And I walked in the meeting and the first thing, they're, they're very nice. The EPs of the show and they're, Hey, welcome. And I had this notebook with me. So now me. this is the show that you're, sorry to interrupt, but this is just for our audience. This is the show that you're currently on. Is yeah. That correct? It's a, this is animated the, um, show called the great North. Yeah. And, right. and this is about, it's about a, a family in Alaska. Um, a single, single dad. dad raising a yeah uh, his kids in Alaska. Dad is Nick Offerman. Uh, the kids are Jenny Slate, Will Forte, Aparna Nancherla, uh, Paul Rust. Great cast. Uh, yeah, um, and Dulce Sloan. Um, yeah, really, really uh, funny cast um, and great show. And it premieres. It's on Fox, and um, it premieres official. They've already previewed some ep- episodes. But its official premiere is, the, is February 14th. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, Valentine's yeah. Day. So you're writing on it now. Are you are you voicing a character on this? I um, I don't know if... Uh, sure. Maybe. <laughs> yes. yes. I, do, I don't okay, know if I, what I'm supposed to say in regards to that. But, All right. Fair enough. Yeah. But, well, we won't uh, go but yeah. uh, yes, I, my, voice, my voice does appear... I can say that my voice your sedu- does your seductive my voice, voice. My seductive voice does appear on some episodes. So yeah, in all its seductory. Um, now, when you well, that's an amazing full circle moment. Um, yeah. So when you're, you know, when you were doing your sets of the punchline, who were the folks that you were? I, I assume that this is this where you met W. Kamal Bell. Yeah, 
Yeah, so he and I started... He had been doing comedy, I think, in Chicago for a little bit. And then and then I think he said he stopped briefly or whatever. But he he then came to San Francisco and um, and started. And yeah, that's... So we we started in San Francisco around the same time. I think he came to San Francisco just after I did. Um, but it's like him and Al Madrigal. And, okay. um, and then a little bit later, like guys like Moshe Kasher and Ali Wong okay. and Emily oh, yeah, Heller, cool. they were all part of our, you know, just like those were your, the folks your, gra- that your was... graduating class, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, the, some of them were a little bit after us, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it was there long enough so that we were sort of peers with all of these people and yeah. Now when, uh, W. Kamau Bell, when he came, do you call, is there ever, you, I just don't know how else to say his name except his full name. I just call him Kamau. I think most people who okay. know him call him Kamau. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I'm just, well, I'm not. I'm not going to uh, uh, con- compare myself to him. He's had <laughs> yeah. a much better uh, career, oh, uh, sir, substantial person than I am. But uh, but I am kind of the same. It's Jay Claude Deering, and I have my my friends call me um, and family call me by my middle name Claude. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, but I guess my question was going to be, did he, did you both move down to LA around the same time? Did he, did you decide to move to, uh, no, he, he never moved to LA. He never moved to LA. Oh, he didn't. I don't think. No, he didn't. Because you've been collaborators on a few projects. One of them was his show Mm -hmm. and you were head writer of that show. The totally biased. Yeah. He, um, he and I became writing partners fairly early in our comedy careers um we just started writing at first i think like sketches together and then like we were working on features and just writing as much stuff as we could um and so i moved to la and then i think yeah when i moved from la we were roommates and so we'd we'd lived together for like two years um and then I moved to Los Angeles. He stayed in the Bay Area and um, until he sold his show. And then we both sort of moved to New York at the same time and kind of started. But we were, I mean, we almost, we, we had actually, we were this close to getting another job together just as a writing team a, a year or two before he sold his show. And it didn't happen. And um, so, yeah, this kind of just was our... And we were very, we were like, finally, we get our shot. And then it just kind of, oh, no. And it just all went off a cliff. So, yeah, this was super exciting for us and uh, to sort of to have that shot again, which is how it happens. You never just get one shot. Right. Yes. uh, (laughs) I was going to say, yes, of course. I'm like, uh, well, yeah, it's more like, yeah, so I, so I, it's a lot of little, you know incremental i've had a lot of these meetings where you're pitching an idea for i've done the i've gone into comedy central to pitch shows and Mm -hmm. things like that uh but most of the time going in by myself and i think that you know sometimes i do think about i mean i went i remember going in once for one of those meetings and they were like oh it's just you (laughs) wow and i was like i was like oh shit i need to and this you know this points to a thing it's like pick your roommates carefully (laughs) yeah Yeah, I right? guess. I don't know. I mean, or hopefully you and your roommate, you're both equally brilliant and <laughs> but roommates are important. Yeah, in any case. 
I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's always in, in whether no, reg- yeah, I think regardless of <laughs> what business you're in, whether they're going to be a, yeah. a TV star or if they're going to or whether they'll eat your oatmeal. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which <laughs> this he, is a callback. He is well done. He he did he didn't eat my oatmeal. He did steal my ice cream. Did he? he? That yes. He ate oh, took oh, it boy, right out of the, the real, freezer. The real tea here, and I remember um, I was highly upset. <laughs> uh the oatmeal reference was from before we started recording yes. for everybody out there where we were we were figuring out a lot of technical issues um on our part and sure. not on Kevin's. Um so I did want to talk about you and uh Kamau have a an amazing podcast called The Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time period podcast. Thank you. Um, where you rank his movies uh, by their level of Denzelishness? Yes, yes, that is. Yeah, that's uh, well. We don't have the podcast anymore, but we. I mean, when we were, particularly when we were roommates, we used to talk a lot about. We just talked about movies and entertainment stuff all the time, anyway. But we both ha- sort of had this love for Denzel Washington and his movies, and I. I it's maybe safe to say we got to the point where we started analyzing him and his performances and his you know and yeah we just we had done this thing on the radio where we were sort of I mean we weren't really uh movie reviewers or movie critics but we were on the radio talking about movies at one point we did this thing called Siskel and Negro and we so we both enjoyed kind of talking this type of shop uh in that format and then we turned it into a podcast and i i think by the i was on the totally bias was over um he wasn't i don't think he was working on a show at the time um or he was he maybe got a dev- show. i think he got yeah i think this united. was before he got united shades i think he was maybe right. he was still sort of working on it or developing it and i was at um john oliver by then and he Got called it. me and was like, hey, let's do this thing. Why don't we just talk about this thing we always talk about? And that became the podcast. It's a great idea for a podcast. And, you know, we have had some that was one of the things I was going to ask you about was, you know, with our with our series, we've had a couple of good Denzel stories on our series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you heard we had actor Brandon Scott tell one about auditioning for Denzel for the film The Great Debaters. Did you happen to catch that story? I did not. No. Well, I'll, I'll keep it quick, but it's a story about he he ended up getting to audition in the room with Denzel Uh and went he was straight out of college. And if you don't know Brandon Scott, he's been on a number of shows. He was on, um, this is us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he's also a a major character on the series dead to me. He Mm -hmm. plays the cop. Yeah. So anyway, he decided the character had a drinking problem. This younger character, he was auditioning for and he decided to go method which involved he brought in a flask that he he said he had sterilized i asked how do you how do you sterilize an alcohol bottle without (laughs) using alcohol and he just said he ran it you know some hot water through it or whatever so anyway he's doing the scene with denzel and um denzel at some point says "Hmm, hmm," you know that's interesting Can can i see that flask for a second and so he gave denzel the the prop and denzel sort of sat with it for a minute. Hmm, hmm. All right. All right. Okay. Well, you know, thanks for coming in or whatever. And so, you, I, you know, I don't want to pre- repeat it too much because 
<laughs> you should. I, I think you'd enjoy listening uh-huh. to it. But I was curious if you heard that story. He to this day doesn't know if Denzel was like this guy was is drinking in the in in the middle of this audition, which he which Brandon was not. You know, he was right, not right. at all. But it was this. He was coming straight out of drama school, and he, as he said, he was like he was getting on his his, his Daniel Day on. Wait, wait, hold on. Did it smell like alcohol? I guess. Well, he said Brandon said he doesn't have a great sense of smell, but that he was walking away <laughs> and he started to think about it, and he started to wonder. He was like, "Well, that was like a little. I wonder if that was like a little weird." And then he started thinking, like, "Oh shit! I wonder if this guy thinks like I was." went full James Dean and like was oh, God. drunk in the room, you know? So anyway, it's an amazing, so Brandon was very generous to share it with us. And, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to keep speaking his name out sure, here sure. more than, more than just what he told us on, on the podcast. But God. we've had a couple of fun Denzel stories. We had Chris Pine on our series who talked a little yeah. bit about taking the, the role in unstoppable versus doing the town. He was offered the Jeremy Renner part in the town what? and he decided he opted for, unstoppable because you know for um, i believe a a few reasons but one of i mean the main one being i think to work with work with the man himself so man um but you know what i what i love about your podcast is that you both you're really good about dedicating yourselves to the episodes and you. you know some of the movie review shows are it ends up being the people talking about themselves which to be honest is kind of what i do on my show (laughs) It's fun to talk. talk about ourselves. I my, this is very loose here, but sure. if you say out the gate this is about the movie, then I want then I do want to hear about the movies, and you're you're both great at keeping it on 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 subject. That's really funny because I think I I would fight that a lot, and I always wanted to personalize it more and talk more about what was going on in our worlds and our lives, and and he was very much like okay, so let's we're here to talk about this, and we're. And so, I, I mean, I guess in that way, we've balanced each other out very well. Um, and it did go, we did wade into each other's personal world a lot. I think maybe... I need to listen to more of it. I mean, I, I, the, I did listen to, I listened to the one, of the first episode, which I think was about the Equalizer, or maybe number yeah, two. Yeah, because I think equalizer. that's, I think we, we started at the Equalizer had just come out. And so that was I, the, the ones... first movie we did. The movies that I uh, or the ones that I listened to, uh, the additional ones I listened to were I did listen to the one about um, about Glory and I listened to the one Mm -hmm. about Malcolm X. Oh, who? Oh, Chris. That was probably Chris Chalk. I think did Mm -hmm. the Malcolm X. That was I think Malcolm X. Oh, because, yeah, yeah, that was we had not (laughs) we we prematurely. I shouldn't say prematurely ended the podcast, but we ended the podcast and I don't think we talked about Malcolm X. Um, and people were not happy about that, obviously, but I like <laughs> he had come out was, had gotten crazy busy. And so he stopped kind of doing episodes. So I was doing it by myself for a while. And then I was no, I left last week tonight and was moving back to LA and starting an, and was on a new show. And the thing about last week tonight is our week was um, we worked Wednesday through Sunday because John Oliver, okay. t- we taped the shows on Sunday. And so I had Monday and Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday was my weekend. So I could record, I could go and record podcast episodes during the week and Earwolf was open. You know, we use regular office hours to record. 
well, they weren't the studio. We didn't have access to it on the weekend. And so I was like, well, I'm going to work on a show now that's Monday through Friday. So bye podcast. And I just kind of had to end it. And it was cause for much, um, a, a lot of Mesh gas. Yeah. Much service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but eventually we came back and yeah, we did Malcolm X. And... Um, I should, we should talk a little bit about, um, your Emmy winning multiple. Have you won multiple Emmys for writing on last week tonight? Uh, yes. Yes, that is true. It, that's, a, that's such a yeah, weird... Kind of, if, if there's the opposite of saying something with your chest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that was it right there. Yeah, it, Good it, Lord. It, yeah. I would... I think... I don't know. I suppose I'd probably do the same. It's um, it's awesome to have won those. It is, it's always weird to talk about it. It's always... Um, it's just... Yeah. I know. But yes. Can I ask you... So was, was that coming... I'm trying to remember the timeline. How soon after his taking over uh, for John on The Daily Show did that show happen? Was that within that year? Was it the next year sort of thing? Because he had a great run subbing in for John before he got that show. It would have been the following year because Last Week Tonight started... Well, uh, so last week tonight they were starting the they were starting to look for writers, and that show was put into production at the end of 2013. Um, not put into production, but pre pre production, and uh, because I remember, um, totally biased, wrapped at in November 2013, October November November 2013, and and I remember my agents were like. So you're gonna to submit to to the John Oliver show, right? The the like the Daily Show was looking for for writers and correspondents, and and last week tonight was was also looking, and I was kind of wiped out from totally biased from that. You know we, that we'd done two seasons on that, and I and we were going into the holidays, and I was like, yeah, no, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it, and I fully intended to and i just never submitted to either of those shows and i had gotten a job at writing on a show called best week ever on vh1 which would be it's that would be it's like last season uh i think and was that a show that uh that baron vaughn was doing because i remember him doing stuff that he was doing some of that talking head stuff yeah, I, I don't... He definitely wasn't doing... In his really early on. Though. Yeah. No, well, I mean, Best Week Ever had seen several iterations. And, yeah, that's right. And so he might have been doing it by... Like, I think before they brought it back, there was a version where Paul F. Tompkins was just the host on his own. and cause, Oh, okay. And so... <clears throat> so, yeah, they did so many different versions of it. So I'm I would not be surprised if Baron was in one of those but when i when i got there uh he was you know it was it was people like emily tarver and nick turner and um Mm. you know so um so yeah i they were that was my first gig after totally biased and i just kind of took it and was like i'm fine with that and then while i was there uh my agent 
like early in 2014, my agent called me and was like, listen, they're asking you, asking about you over at uh, last week tonight. You, you, you interested in writing for the show? And I'm like, yes. And so that, I mean, I really, I would have liked to have submitted and I just didn't have it in me at the time. And so, yeah, when they, when they sort of came asking, um, I was more than happy to bang out a, a writing sample I think okay, I remember saying to my agent, so what I got like a couple of weeks and he's like, you got two days. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, OK, yeah, right, so right. I had to bang that out um, <laughs> as quickly as I could. And, and I yeah, they offered me the job like I think that week it, it all happened super fast. And, you know, I wonder about. What oh, that I'm sorry. Must have felt like to answer your question. So, yeah, I think he had wrapped his run sometime in 2013. And then mm-hmm. the show, he got the deal and the show came. You came on at the beginning of the show? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I think yeah, I started I'm... like a week after everybody else. But yeah. Okay. I'm curious about what that pressure must have felt like. To... to for it to be successful on a on, as a weekly show on a, on as a big, I'm sure a big push by HBO. Yeah. I mean, well, look, early on, I don't know that the writers felt the pressure because we were just happy to be there and excited about what it was going to be. And we didn't know what the, sh- you know, we, we didn't know what the show was going to eventually turn into certainly, but like, I, yeah. So I didn't get the sense that there was this pressure. I think it was just like, this is going to be great. We hope, we hope it's great, but we think it's going to be great. And, and, um, and just kind of having fun with all this silliness. The mood was, was, great when i joined you know so like i joined a week late and there was already like there were already sort of inside jokes with between some of the writers and john and and things that they were laughing about in the room i remember that i was like what the hell is he talking about uh so the mood was great i didn't feel this sense of pressure if anything i think the pressure came after the show really found its footing and and its definition and became what it was and then i think there was a uh, there was a tremendous pressure to kind of keep that up and keep up and the do the thing it. Yeah. that it was doing and suddenly the because you know our first episode our big piece was a we were talking about the Indian election and it was seven minutes long that was our main story and we were talking you know I remember John saying I'm just worried that. Seven minutes, that feels like a long seven time. Are they even going to, yeah, right. people going to tune into this or, or just shut us off? And now the pieces are 20, 25 minutes. They're 20 minutes. Long. Yeah. So there's something about what he does that reminds me a little bit of like Covent Garden when you go through is that you, you, there's, there's a, there's, there's usually a lot of performance art that's happening in Covent Garden. And there's a, I hope this doesn't end my career saying this. I Here we go. John Here Oliver, go. a street, a street performer. <laughs> But there's a there is a real tradition in the UK, as far as I could, I was made aware of. Um, he just he there's a there there's a way that you learn to to hold audiences' attention as they're passing by and 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 keep them yeah. staying with you as a street performer in the UK. That is its own version of it. We mm-hmm. have the same thing happens in Central Park and all yeah. sorts of places in the U- US as well. But. Um, but yeah, he does. He'll go for those twenty minutes, and it is, it is, it's, the writing is the jokes per, 
minute and the 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 import of what's getting of what's happening in those 20 minutes and beyond is just it's uh it's thrilling well yeah i mean that's i i worked with i think that's where i work with the best comedy writers i've ever worked with is in that room though i was just astonished at these guys who just i mean like the youngest writer was this woman julie wiener and i was just blown away i remember saying i'm i'm literally intimidated by how good you are you know i mean just the the skill and you know i think it was a group of folks that came from different writing backgrounds some folks came from the onion um some I think uh, Julie had written for Vanity Fair and, you know, and then there were some people who were brand new. This was their first writing job. And so, um, yeah, it was just all of them. It was such, it felt like such a dirty dozen type of with everyone having a very specific kind of skill and, and Mm -hmm. really utilizing it to the fullest. And I always say like, if, if totally biased was a, was comedy writing boot camp then last week tonight was like seal training it just oh cool yeah it just sharpened it's like the great it's the group from predator dropping yeah. into the mexican <laughs> yeah. forest in puerto vallarta yeah <laughs> yeah that's it that's it it just i mean it they pushed you to get the, you know just these jokes man you we were turning our scripts and and they would be done or we thought they'd be done and then like the couple days before the show we'd just be sitting in these in the writer's room uh having to go through it and and punch up all the jokes that nah we need a new punchline we need a new joke for this we need a new joke for this and just forcing you to you know to really find the best joke you could and yeah it was great uh, I have one more, I think one more question for you, which is, uh, I was curious, you know, you've been a head writer a couple, I think at least twice. Yes. Yes. I think twice. Three, what is it like twice. when yes. you're the head writer of a show and you've got, you, what kind of responsibility is that to get everyone to kind of, how much of a hand do you have in picking people and how, is it, in your experience, has it been easy for folks to gel and how important is everyone gelling in what ways? I guess I'm curious about what the responsibility feels like to be a head writer. Um, it, it, it often depends on the room. Um, depending, it, you know, it depends on the structure, it de- on the who's doing what job, the higher, the, the even higher ups um, and, and how everyone does that job. So it could be very, it's never an easy job, but it can be a little more relaxing and it could be a little less relaxing just depending on the room. And, and I think, I think all of them actually have their, all these jobs come with their own. Every room is different and it's going to have, it's going to come at you with a different form of stress. And so, um, or challenges, that's the best way to put it. Stresses. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like with uh, New Negroes, it was a small room, but, you know, Open Mike Eagle and Baron Vaughn were the yeah. hosts of the show, and they also took part in some of the writing. And so Got it. between yeah. them and um, the two writers, the other two writers we had, and then me, 
it was a it was a full enough room that it that it worked well on that show i would imagine that you're i guess you would be doing some punch up right isn't that well because because it's not so much your i mean they would do they both would do bits yeah a little bit but i uh, that always felt very sort of improvisational no you can never you can never tell baron said he scripted something i would be like i I would have no idea it was all scripted and 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 he i mean that's Baron is brilliant in that way. Just yes. kind of, yeah, yeah. He great actor and an incredible improviser. Yeah, and, well, that's the thing too. Like, you he and can Joker. take he can take a script and deliver it like, and him and Mike were were great at this, both of them, and just deliver it like yeah. it's all off the cuff. Or you just let them go and let them riff, and and they can do that too. And you know, yeah. And so, but we were we wrote everything big and then we would have to scale it back because they, they, you know, each episode we wanted to tackle a specific topic and theme. And so we wrote two or three, you know, um, bits on that and some, you know, more commentary and then like a sort of a larger set piece, a larger sort of more sketchy type of thing that sometimes involved a special oh, yeah, guest. That's right. Of course. So, right. So yeah, I mean, we to lock those down. We there were those were we had lots of conversations. A lot of the writing was in the room, just discussing what the hell we wanted to say about this topic or that topic. Um, whereas on totally biased, it was a the, the writing staff was bigger, and yeah. it was just more go around the room and pitch some stuff. And we, you know, oh, yeah, we like this. Oh, this, this is a great story. We need to talk about this. Uh, we like your angle. Go off and write it. Or you and this writer go tackle that together or or whatever. And I, I'm totally biased. A lot of the writers already knew each other. And it did feel like, to an extent, very family almost. And um, so I, I think, I think it, that helped a lot to, to to take off the a little bit of the of the pressure i don't know but you yeah. know with totally biased there were other crazy challenges and and it was the, that was that show it was a new thing for a lot of people i mean it was my first time being a head writer it was it was kamal's first job first time uh hosting a show it was you know so and there were a lot of writers who this was their first write i mean it was my first writing job period before i even was promoted to head writer so yeah it was it was new for everybody and like as as much fun as it was at first then yeah there was certainly added pressure once you realize that oh shit we're really doing this this goes on tv every week people have to watch it the pressure just it just is there whether you want it to be or not yeah so but as a head writer I I think I just tried my best to be there for the writers and to try to kind of, um, you know, yeah, lead them. As, I mean, that feels, I don't know, It's we're not marching in a battle, but, you know, just kind of, you want to not leave your writers hanging as much as possible. And I hope I did that while Does still that serving the doing- show. You're pulling the longest hours. 
Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it means not always because there are writers who are like banging away and maybe pulling an all-nighter to get a script finished, you know. Um, but it, it uh, yes, oftentimes it meant you're there the latest with the the showrunner and Kamau and, you know, because at least before like show nights, cause you got to make sure that script yeah. is, is oh, yeah. done and punched up and all that stuff and prepared. So yeah, there were late nights and you know, that's the way it is. But there were times on yeah. last week tonight where I was, I was up all night working on a script and, you know, so the, each show breeds a completely different environment. Cool. Well, yeah. Uh, Kevin, uh, this has been, this ended up being a bit of a marathon and, uh, I really appreciate, uh, one of the things that I was, uh, this is kind of the best that I could hope for with doing this project is that I end up, uh, not just having on folks that I know, but getting to meet very interesting people like you. And, um, so I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, being so gracious uh, with your time, and uh, this hey, will end you, up man. being twenty minutes. <laughs> <We'll>, <laughs> All right. I don't. I I love so much of this. So we will. We'll. You know. I don't know. Um, it may be the whole the whole time. We'll see. Um, I'm just, not putting too many limits on what w- the format of what we're doing. Just make sure all the B stuff stays. All just, the B all stuff, the B stuff is a must. <laughs> now, see, here's not the thing. only will we have to cut the B yeah. stuff, but we'll have to now cut this part or just leave this no, part leave in. No, leave that in. Leave it for, for context. <laughs> well, look, sorry, guys, you missed the B talk, but there was a <laughs> lot of discussion about bees. And I have a B suit. Go to my Instagram and you'll see Kevin Every Comedy. That- You'll That's see what me I in the should be suit. saying. Yeah, you know. So the people can find you on Instagram at what was it again? Kevin Avery Comedy. How about on Twitter? Uh, at Kevin Avery. Great. Yeah. It is an honor. Uh, thank you for making the time. Thank Congrats you. Congrats on all your success. Oh, thanks. Very um, much. Looking forward to following you uh, as you continue killing it in the future. And appreciate. It. I wish you safety and good health. Same to you, man. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Kevin Avery. A big thank you again to Kevin for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. There was, in fact, a pretty lengthy chunk about bees, hornets, and yellow jackets. And like I promised, we cut it. (laughs) But out of respect for Kevin and his fascinating odyssey with a yellow jacket infestation in his Silver Lake rental during lockdown, we've added it to our Patreon. Please enjoy. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Corbin Reed, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, Joan Ford, Madison Shepard, and Shelley Bala coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, Kevin Avery's Bees, and more. <laughs> You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram page at things are going great for me. If you like any of what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Hannah Dickinson. We talk about sobriety, stand up, strict parents, making money, and the difference between writing for millennials versus writing for Gen Z folks. Hannah was also in an acting class I taught years ago, so we chat about that as well. Here now is the hilarious and brilliant Hannah Dickinson.
This is, I don't know if this is, anyone knows what this is, but if you lived in the DMV area, which is Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., mm-hmm. they had this thing called John Robert Powers where they were casting calls for big Hollywood agencies. Oh, and you okay. go and audition for these casting directors, and then you pay basically, it's basically like you pay a bunch of money to be in front of casting directors. Okay, yeah. And I did that in sixth grade and I met a casting director and basically I did a Pepsi commercial in front of him and then he sent me the script for Hannah Montana as the friend. The, they were casting it at the, at the time? Yeah, at that time. Cool. So yeah, so I was like, I'm going to be a star. I guess I'm moving to Hollywood. I want to be <laughs> Hannah Montana's friend. And then, of course, I didn't get a call back or anything, but... I started in middle school. I was going to NYU and auditioning for um, NYU. Or, yeah, I was just going to New York and auditioning for NYU films. Oh, that's cool. And then it, yeah. I mean, I didn't get any. Well, I got one. It was called Picture Day, and my only part was to sit on a stool and get my picture taken. Huh. But what's crazy about that is the guy, the student who directed it and created that movie, He's an editor at Comedy Central where I work. So he works with all my friends. And I'm like, you know this guy? I was in his first student film. It's just such a weird world. Small world, kind of. Um, But yeah, so when I was doing... I did that a lot in middle school. But when I got into high school, I stopped after freshman year because I was going up every weekend with my mom to audition. Yeah. Or missing school to do these auditions for NYU student films. Like, unpaid films. And after going to USC film, like... It's very funny to see I was such a sucker because, like, it's really, like, not a big deal to be in a student film. Right. And it's just, like, insane that we would do that. But I just was sick of the rejection. I was like, I don't want to be an actor. Oh, my God. You burned out as a kid. You, you I already burned out. You, you were bitter and burned out as a child already. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's intense. Well, because it was, like, I... It felt like such a waste of time, and I was like, I don't want to miss my high school years. Yeah, well, it's a lot of go. driving. You're driving up to New York. Yeah, we were Fuck. driving, and staying at like, you know, in New Jersey or whatever, and then driving in for the day. Oh my god! And it wasn't, and it wasn't like I was auditioning for cool shit. Like, it was I was auditioning for non-union student films, low budget, you know, like guy yeah. in his apartment films, like. And this was before even sketches were a thing. So who knows where these movies were going. But I liked acting. I just didn't want... It didn't feel worth it. I was like, there's no reward here. I'm auditioning for stuff that even if I got it, it wouldn't be worth it. So I was like, I don't want to be an actor. And then I went to USC film school. And I was like studying film and doing internships in production and um yeah and I realized that I did want to be an actor and that's when I took that course that summer where you were my teacher oh yeah I, that's right I taught you in a class that's right yeah. um over at Stella Adler yeah was I good I can't even remember if it was a good you class. were good you were harsh but you were good oh all right oh shit I was harsh I don't think I would be anymore but yeah cool 
the I, it's good on your mom for doing all that driving. I mean, um, my my mom used to do that too. Like I started, I started, I did book a few things when I was a kid. I booked like um, I started booking some uh, musicals like at professional places because I could sing as a kid. That was a big deal that I could do that. And then I booked like an Encyclopedia Britannica commercial because of course I did when I was like eleven. And my mom did drive me around to a few things, but we were on the West Coast at the time, so we were close to where things were. We didn't have to drive four hours. Like, that's commitment. I know you had said, like, you didn't smoke in high school, you didn't drink in high school. Did you, were your parents very strict when you were growing up? Yeah. My, well, my parents were just, yeah, my mom was very strict. My mom was just a stay at home mom, so it was like, I couldn't get away with anything, and I also was so set on going to a good college. I was obsessed. I was such a perfectionist, and I still am, but I wanted to get straight A's, so drinking wasn't really... I didn't think I was ever going to drink, which is crazy, because... I'm now a recovering alcoholic, so I never thought I wanted to drink. I was like, I'm never going to drink. I'm going to be, I don't know. I just thought I was going to be a straight-laced person, and then I went to USC, and all hell broke loose, and <laughs> here I am getting sober again, so. Are you really? Is the, um, Congratulations on that. Are you, uh, do you have a bunch of months uh, clean? Is this a second attempt, or um, when you say recovering, what do you, what do you mean? Well, this is my third attempt, um, and the longest I've done is six months, but I was smoking weed during that time. Right. And so, California sober. Exactly, which is not sober. And I started drinking during quarantine. I actually went to rehab, so I was in rehab like two months ago, so I'm like rounding out my third month sober. Good for you. That's awesome. Thanks. I was, yeah, I was, I was telling someone else on here. We were t- had a long conversation about sobriety and I was just saying, like, it's hard for it's very hard for me to change behavior in terms of my my how I treat myself. I I work hard to the way I sort of approach other people and, and think in terms of empathy. But like for me, it's very hard to change one or two things about my habits. Um, so I'm impressed. It's it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's hard. I feel the same way. Like, and um, even my friends will say that to me. They'll be like, the way you talk about yourself, would you ever say that about me? My friend said that to me once, and I was like, of course not. And she was like, that's the problem. And I mm. also think stand-up has trained me to talk so much shit about myself yeah. that I have almost manifested it to almost be true. And so I, I just, I had a really bad accident. So that's why I had to go to rehab. But, um, I just like learned so much about myself and it was such a mental reset that I needed. So it's like, I say recovering cause it's like, you, you know, I, I have the tools now, but every day I have to reapply. Yeah. So it's not just, it's not, you know, you go to rehab and you come out great. It's like, you have to keep trying. Of course. Yeah. And I think like and I, I know you've talked also about like you don't do a lot of drugs. You really haven't uh, ever. And, you know, one of the things you cited was that you have your ch- a healthy share of anxiety. And, y- you know, 
I'm always curious. Like it's it's weird. I think as comedians because uh, sometimes we will will tr- do a lot of things that, like you were saying, like talk shit on yourself, at, like to ingratiate yourself with an audience or to get even some folks sometimes folks to to get attention just to say sort of like deal with me like look at me and but then at the same time as soon as people do start looking at you that's i feel like when at least for myself if any time i feel that way which is not that often i'm not a big deal or anything but uh that's when the anxiety kicks in yeah exactly I, I feel very uncomfortable if I'm in a room and people are like, oh, Hannah's a comedian. And everyone's like, oh, really? Like, what do you, I hate that. I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> but then when I'm on stage, I'm like, shut the fuck up. You need to leave the room if you're going to talk while I'm talking. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so, it, I've said there's nothing more embarrassing than wanting to be a comedian. Like I need a microphone in a room full of people. That's what I, that's how bad I need attention. But it is, um, I heard Sarah Silverman in, uh, on the cars, getting com- comedians in cars with cars, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she said she doesn't want to say it's like being gay, being a comedian, but it is in you in a way that you can't, it's just who you are. You can't explain it, being <laughs> okay. a stand-up. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, and it's very, I guess would be an insensitive comparison, but it, it it weirdly feels like it's just who I am and I can't if I didn't do stand up it would be I really don't know what else I would be doing doing stand up uh to me feels and by the way I don't I don't do it in any near nearly in any amount the way that um you or so many other great comedians do it I never went on the road you know I was I really came out of doing videos there was a period when I graduated college where people were putting sketches online and it was very, it was an exciting time. The Stella sketches were online. That was like a big inspiration to a lot of us. It took, I had done some stand up uh, at age 20. I took a class with um, Lewis Black and did some stand up and liked it a lot. But I think that it took me a while to come back to doing it in LA and then um, when I did I felt like I was late to the game at that point looking at people people my age people I actually knew when I was 20 or people like uh, folks like Baron Vaughn who who were just one of the hardest hardest working people I know Um, but anyway the when I do it I do feel it a sense of compulsiveness to do it yeah, no, but I also think you said like you have a happy family, you know, there, there are sacrifices <laughs> for a comedian because I do feel like this was my in COVID. It was my first year as an adult not doing stand up almost every night and not just doing it and doing it and doing it. Yeah. And I did feel happier and I was like, maybe I shouldn't do stand up anymore. But I also, after going to rehab, realized that I was just unhappy for other reasons and I was making my stand-up a part of that. So yeah. now being sober, it's nice to have a stand-up because now I can't go party or go on a date. So <laughs> I can't, I'm, not, I'm not at going on a date sober um, yet. So, But I do think, to your point, like, I mean, I've seen your stand-up. You have great jokes. And it's like you could do stand up if you wanted to, but it's also if you don't want to do it every night, 
Yeah. I also understand that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's generous of you. Um, so I understand now you were during lockdown, you've been staying with your parents, right? I was for a little bit. Yeah. And you started a, a podcast in your in your family basement called Don't Tell Mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because I was sober and then COVID hit. I went to Miami like the day COVID hit. I was flying to Miami and I started drinking again that day. So I was like, well, oh, the world is over. Yeah. And right. I was texting my brother and this guy who I'd been talking to for a while. And I said, oops, I'm drinking again. Don't tell mom. And the guy that I was like seeing, I thought I texted that to my brother. I texted it to the guy I was seeing. Oh, boy. Like, I'm drinking again. Don't tell mom. And the guy I'm, I was seeing goes, aren't you 28? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, Got it. And, but I do feel like growing up, my mom was very strict. And she was always the last person I told. Uh, What's an example of I have some my mom was very strict with me. What's an example of your mom being strict? I can't even it because I never did anything bad really like I was never a bad kid but it was like if her friends were over for dinner and I didn't have a good attitude I was like yelled at oh okay so everything yeah which I don't like my mom and I have like definitely changed our relationship and it's gotten a lot better yeah but I'm realizing also through therapy that like that's part of my self-deprecation is uh it was just like if I didn't have the right attitude at the right time I would get in trouble was there that old-fashioned thing of like kids should be seen and not heard kind of thing kind of like I'm your mother what I say goes I used to I remember at the dinner table like my mom if I was being rude she used to just she would just she'd grab a quick look at me and she'd show me her bottom teeth (laughs) No, it was like that. And even when I went to college, I'd like say to my friends, are you mad at me? And they'd be like, why do you always ask that? And I realized it's because my mom was always mad at me. Oh, boy. But But now we have a relationship where I've, you know, we've been through a lot. So I just have and I haven't made her. I, I would say as an adult, I became because I moved out. Like I wasn't allowed to go to Beach Week as a senior in high school. Everyone goes to Beach Week. All the seniors go. I was oh, not boy. allowed to go. Oof. Because my mom was like, I don't want you going to the beach as a high schooler. I heard it gets wild down there. You can't go. But well, then she let me go to USC across the country. Yeah. So did she have any moment of being like, I want you to go to school somewhere close? Or, or that didn't seem to be a problem? No. My mom was like, you should experience the world. And I was like, okay, but going okay. to a party school at is 18 that what it without... Is? USC is such a party school, yeah. Oh, Especially, I didn't know that. I, I mean, don't... it's a good school. Yeah, it's uh, definitely... Well, my freshman year was the last year there were frat parties on the row every single night. So my freshman year, I probably drank six nights a week. I could see that thing as being a trigger when you're 21 and suddenly this thing you've been waiting for for so much time you get to do when suddenly there are no parents in your life. Like that's an interesting combination. Yeah. It's like you have no supervision and can do whatever you want and you have access to the substance you've never been exposed to before. It's just, it's a horrible, and they, I would be, they call it freshman syndrome, freshman year syndrome where you get so crazy. 
And embarrassingly, I had that. I was obsessed with partying. I think I was just so burned out from high school and, you know, taking APs and getting straight A's that I just didn't care because I knew I wasn't going to go to grad school. So I was like, my GPA doesn't matter. So your plan was like go to film school and initially like go to film school, become a filmmaker? No, I thought maybe I'd become an agent. Oh, interesting. You'd be a great agent. Thank you. I mean, I was a, like, you're an amazing comedian, but yeah, I could see you being a very good thanks. agent too. I, yeah, I was just like, because I didn't think it was possible to make money being a performer. I just never saw that as a possibility. Yeah. Um, so I was like, how can I work in this industry and how can I make a lot of money? And then my friends were interning at agencies and that seemed miserable. And what I realized, like, yeah. what through my internships and just learning about the industry and just learning the the art of it I don't know just everything about it I was like okay well no matter what you do in this industry you have to work hard yep like hard work is the first thing that's gonna that's no matter the hard you could be the most talented person but the hardworking person always is always gonna make it further than you absolutely yeah and so I was like and I was like, I know I'm a hardworking person, so I might as well just go for what I want. And then if that doesn't work out, then I can like transition or just get married. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll just get married, <laughs> have a kid. Uh, that's the second plan. I, mean, I recommend but, it. Yeah, it's I, I like it, but it does. It puts it. It puts it. I've said this a couple times. Like it puts a dent in your hustle. It does. I can. What? I can do. I can do this. I can't do this and be out every night doing stand up. I would. I'd be divorced. Like. Uh, which I would completely understand. I can I, I have to now like really decide what am I going to put my energy in to and choose one, one or two things. Yeah. I think it's like you get to a level like, you know, um, Amy Schumer or Sebastian or whoever it mm-hmm. is. And you can choose when you go up at what time you get there. You're like, Oh, yeah. oh I'm going to be gone for a half an hour, you know? So then yeah. at that point, you can do whatever, but in, yeah, when you're grinding, like you can't have a family. My friend Ian Fidance and I were talking about this one day. It would be so funny to have a sketch of like the real housewives of open mic comedians who are like, That'd be I have great. to carry the baby upstairs, like all this shit, because it's like, it's such a grind and to be attached to that is, I, yeah, it's miserable, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I would eventually like to have a family, but I also, I didn't do, I didn't get into stand-up because I wanted to be a stand-up. I actually got into stand-up because that audition class I took with you, I picked a scene that was comedy and you said, well, you're never going to get that part because they're only going to take comedians. Like a part like this is going to go to a female comedian like Sarah Silverman. It doesn't go to comedic actresses. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do stand-up. So I should thank you because I was like, See, oh, what, that makes sense. This is one of the, the pitfalls of if you ever, te- if anybody ever, if you ever teach a class is that you're now going to, you don't realize what makes such a big impression on people that then they carry with them forever. And it lights a fire for them in one direction or another. I need to break that down then for a second. So whatever it was, do you remember what it was? Let me see if I still actually agree with myself. Cause I might be like, no, I disagree now. 
I can't remember. I might have been from the Sarah Silverman show. I don't know. It was from a comedic sitcom. Oh, so maybe you chose something from what her show to do as a piece? Yeah. Okay. So then probably what I meant, what I'm guessing is what I meant was Hollywood does tend to do, you know, it's interesting now what I notice is like when you, because I just watched this movie Midnight Run with Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro, and it's a comedy. Uh, the great Charles Grodin, who just recently passed away, and all of the the day, day players in that movie are actors. They might be comedic actors, but we're sort of seeing a decline of those now, in my opinion. What I seem to see a lot more of now is like if they need someone funny to, or if they need someone to be a day player in almost any kind of slightly comedic movie, they're going to go right to the Groundlings or right to UCB or right to Second City, and they're going to plug in an improviser or they're going to plug in a stand-up comic. They're not going to hire an actor for those parts anymore. They need someone who's going to come in and like mug during the whole scene. And I think it's, sometimes I think it's sad. Sometimes it's great. It just depends on what the thing is. If it's Barb and Star, I want all Groundlings people. You know, I want all, I, 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 if, it's a, it's, if it's supposed to be a broad comedy, that's what I want. If it's a dramedy, I'd love to see a few more working actors who feel like real people in the sense that they're not doing a bit in their scene. They're just acting the circumstances. What I might have been responding to was the, a thing of seeing, looking around and seeing that, um, probably noticing like you are funny and probably trying to encourage you to think about doing more comedy. That's my best guess. I remember at the time you also said you were interning at Funny or Die. Um, and I was doing this as a web series over there, uh, this series. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. At the same time. And I think you were assisting, maybe. You'd gotten to, uh, you'd moved up to assistant or something. But I was like, I, I probably was like, oh, okay. Like, I think she would benefit from uh, going right at comedy because she's funny and she's got the right, she's she's doing the, all the right things so far. I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah, I didn't take it offensively, but I remember being like, oh, I didn't really know, because growing up, I never watched stand-up comedy. Like, I loved Molly Shannon, I loved SNL, but I I didn't yeah. watch Sarah Silverman, I, I didn't really watch stand-up comedy at all. So, it wasn't until I started watching Amy Schumer where I was like, oh, I could do this, because she right. had a different approach. She was like a girl like me who, you know, partied and slept around and like was just a dumb blonde and it it was uh when I saw Amy Schumer and I I don't like to say that because a lot of people are like just rip off Amy Schumer and I think now I found more of my own voice but you definitely have yeah thanks yeah I mean now I've gone to rehab so it's a little different but uh (laughs) me trying to get sober but I think you know there just weren't that many female stand-ups so I didn't really know but when you said that I was like yeah I think I'm need to be a comedian like I don't it's so hard I mean I'm auditioning now because I recently got an agent at the beginning of the year in January nice thanks um but it's actually shocking that you were looking for an agent after being basically on the team over at Comedy Central I'm, I'm surprised it took even that long it took so long and I got rejected from every top agency like wow. all of them said no yeah it was pretty upsetting but I was really upset and then I just had some perspective where I was like I just have to work harder because like 
I I didn't have a manager and I mean I had a manager that's why I moved to New York he's out of New York and was like I think you'd benefit moving to New York and I was like I'm literally doing nothing in LA I'm down so I moved and um I just it was a weird timing like someone introduced him to me he happened to see me and it wasn't like I would it's not I didn't approach him so I was like and that worked out so I need it I need someone to want me to work with them because otherwise it's just I had and my other friends yeah. had big agents and they weren't auditioning because they weren't the best of their team mm-hmm. you know on their roster so I just every time I get frustrated with my career or get frustrated at place I just have to I just have to reset and be like I have to work harder or I have to be patient because those are I'm so bad at being patient yeah and that's I don't know it's a hard thing in our business. And I, I, you know, I think that you're, there are periods of time where, yeah, you feel like, damn, like what a lot of wasted time. I've had folks on here this season who said I came to LA and like I partied for a bunch of years before I got serious about my career. And like, I think like I was, have been pretty focused, but it's also been hard to figure out. It was at least at the beginning, how to ingratiate yourself with people without, just sort of get pulling, getting in check your sense of like having humility, but also believing in yourself is a, is a, you got to strike a tone that isn't annoying, I think. And that's hard. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Marin said you have to be delusional enough to think you're going to make it, but realistic enough to know (laughs) what level you're at or something like that. And that's how you have to be a little delusional because I mean even now I'm like I don't ever see myself it's hard to imagine being on a tv show like even even but then I mean four years ago it was hard to imagine myself being on Comedy Central's feed so it's it's a weird but it's what I want but for some reason I can't picture it but then I see, I think what helps is seeing people at who I started with get stuff because I'm like, okay, they're getting stuff. Like it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So you became a member of Comedy Central's creators program. I believe it was in its inaugural year. Uh-huh. Um, and it seems like the creators program operates a little bit the way like the original National Lampoon did. It's comedians that are part of an in-house staff, not mm-hmm. too dissimilar from College Humor and Funny or Die as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, how did that program come about? Do you know? Yeah. So Jen Danielson, she was Lauren Michaels assistant for, I mean, years. And then she started above average and then went above average. Yeah. So when that, when they closed that, she moved over to comedy central and she kind of wanted to start like a digital SNL. And I randomly found the job on Twitter, but I had done a general with Comedy Central, so I messaged the girl who I had met with being like, I, I applied, like, and I got an interview, and it was a three-month process of getting a job because you had to do a packet, you had to do an interview, then wow. you had to do an audition, and then you had to do another series of interviews. And I think that was the most stressful time of my life because I wanted it so badly. I remember the day I found out that I got the job, I had a, uh, a catering, um, what's it called? A catering gig or whatever. It was the thing, the thing they teach you how to do it. It was like the first, Oh, the training, the awful The training. training. Yeah. So I was yeah. like learning how to, um, 
fold a tablecloth and and doing all that meanwhile I'm checking my phone the whole time like please let me get this job because I didn't want to be doing the catering job I was like please 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 you just wanted to stand up in that room and just be like fuck everyone here like so bad and you got to do that did that happen well I did that did the moment arrive no so I finished the job and I hadn't heard and basically they were like if you don't hear by the end like basically it it turned three o'clock and they said we'd find out by three and I was like I didn't get it and then I went to a bar and I took a couple shots because I was like this sucks and um but I was like you know what if I have this catering job I can go to the Hamptons <laughs> that would be chill and there were <laughs> yep. a couple hot guys on the team so I was like whatever sure and then I get home and they FaceTime me and told me I got it and I was like oh my fucking god <laughs> thank god um and it's it's crazy because I you know, it was like we we had that daily YouTube show, which didn't um, end up, you know, we didn't all end up it, turning into SNL, but I've gotten to do a lot of cool work. And then I transitioned yeah. to the social team. So it was separate from the social team. It was like we were creating our own stuff. And then I transitioned to the social team. And now I'm like the only person left from the creators who work there. But That's, people yeah. have moved on to bigger things. Um did you um, – I was curious about how how, much, how they paid you all because, you know, one of the things I'm starting to notice is, like, I've got a buddy over at uh, one of the big streamers, and, like, he does – he writes the ca- – he writes, like, the – he writes the copy for when they read the – or when they show what the movie is about. That's his job. He writes, like – a couple of star-crossed lovers like meet in a you know their hometown after a whatever like that's what he writes and he has a salary health benefits um he got himself a tesla like he's killing it he's making you know maybe close to six figures and i'm starting to realize that like the people who do those jobs at these big companies make more than the talent which is insane Yeah, so my salary when I was a creator is not what it is now, but now I'm basically, I do videos with them, but I basically write the copy on their Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and I, I make good money, like I make. Well, at least that's, that's, you're still, I mean, for Comedy Central, that's a, that takes, that's like a comedy writing job, as opposed to like writing copy for a media company. Right. Yeah, but I mean, so it's owned by Viacom, so we do Paramount too. So right. it's like, oh, Golden Girls is coming out at three p.m. Like, can you just do a caption for that? Oh, gotcha. So okay. there is there is a lot of that, but I still get to pitch videos and like do that stuff. But I take that as like the bonus, and the copy is like that's what I'm technically hired for now. Um, and but yeah, copywriting is a really good paid gig. And I was yeah, like trying to yeah. look into freelance stuff too because just to get because I'm terrible with credit cards, but I was like maybe I'll just do that because it's so easy, but it is it's funny like people who aren't writers, it's hard to think of what to write about something. Like you cuz we have people who work in social media and people who are trained to do algorithms and shit, but to write yeah what's how to describe a video they can't do it because it is a it's a writing job but it's pretty easy did you also like i was curious did you all as part of that program do you get like first dibs on auditioning for the daily show and stuff like that 
No. That was, like, the one I think I would say biggest disappointment is I... We don't really get priority on the television side, but I... You know, it's like everyone wants to keep their job. So if if it molds, if we get... If we're in everything, it's kind of like we take away from the people who work at The Daily Show who recruit. And, you know, it's just... So it's all such separate entities that, like, even South Park, we can't even do copy for them because they are so strict about what they want. Hmm. And yeah. so there's such different teams that we we haven't. But I think, I mean, people at Comedy Central know who I am. And now it's like we're owned by CBS. So I'm getting introduced to the CBS people. So it's always good to know these people. But no, I don't get priority. I mean, I haven't been cast. I'm not SAG, which is upsetting. That's that is strange because you've done a lot of videos. I'm surprised that somehow you're not. And also, you've done your. Didn't you do a your special? Like, didn't you do a special for them, or at least didn't you do one of those like, uh, uh, they 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 put a bunch of they gave a bunch of stand ups a certain amount of time, on one of those. Yeah, stages? I did a featuring set, and then I yeah, did a yeah. half hour with Epics, but it was all non union. It was all non union. Your your Epics half hour was a non union shoot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this stuff is going to happen very quickly. I'm I'm not I'm not concerned. It's a, it's weird though. I'm surprised by that. Yeah, it's always interesting. I for the my epics, uh, my paycheck, I bought a Varus bike, which is like a SoulCycle Peloton, whatever. In before I before taxes were taken out and before I had to pay my manager, and thinking I I would have left over after buying the bike. But I had to pay New York taxes and LA taxes, and I had to pay my manager before oh, taxes. I I didn't cover half the bike. I was like, fuck. Yeah. I was like, I was. I got my paycheck, and I was like, I I. It felt like a joke. That's the thing. My friend writes for a show on Netflix, and he called me, and he was like, I got my paycheck. This is kind of fucked. I don't make that much money, and he's writing for a I'm, huge show. This on is Netflix. what I'm fucking talking about. There's something fucked up going on. You know, Scarlett Johansson today. It, it was announced she and maybe Emma Stone. These other people are going to be suing, potentially suing Disney for part of their like fifty million dollars that they're being. Even they are now like the 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 companies are like. Mm, how much did we say? Like let's let's figure yeah. out a way to not pay talent. Well, I think what it is is because there are so many streaming platforms and it's just like everyone's trying to make things for cheap because you it's about now it's like quantity over quality. So I feel like they're making so many shows to keep their streaming service that they have to keep their costs down. And I've been auditioning like recently for like pretty big. I auditioned for this huge movie and my mom goes and I was like, that's so weird. I even got an audition for this. And my mom goes, they're probably trying to cut some budget somewhere, which I thought was so funny. My mom said that to me. Like, I pray for that. When I audition for stuff, I pray for that. I'm like, I'll do it for fucking, which is not the right attitude to have. I do remember I was up for something. I was up for something big this year. And we have another producer friend who's doing uh, uh, works on movies all the time. And it was going to have Oscar winners in it. And this was a we didn't know if it was a lead, but it was a substantial role. And we th- I think I guess at this point I was like, I think it's a lead. And it was down, it came down to me and one other person. And then but our producer friend was like, you'll probably he'll probably be offered about 50 grand to do it. To be a, if it were a lead in that movie, he'd probably be offered about fifty grand for a lead in a studio movie. That's insane. 
Yeah. I guess that's where it starts. But then I have friends who work in television and have done for a long time, and they make their quote now is like for network, for network, is like $75,000 an episode of television. It's just crazy. It's like the price is right. You don't know. It's so... I mean, I just auditioned for this acne campaign. (laughs) My agent emailed me. He was like, he loves your look. And I was like, great, for this chest acne campaign. He loves my look. Awesome. (laughs) And basically for the audition, I had to send in all these photos. I had to take profiles, waist up, and do this whole crazy audition. I was like, this audition is not worth, because it's low-budget SAG, it's a whole campaign online. I was like, this audition is not worth the whole salary that I would get paid for that job. But that being said, please hire me. <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> the desperation of it. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. But also, this feels like a humble brag. But I did feel like a humble brag. But showing prices, I had a show on Snapchat that was produced by Comedy Central. Right. I wanted to talk about that. So you ended up, as you said, you're kind of the last person in this program. You were the breakout performer of the program, which is, by the way, congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And so, yeah, so then Comedy Central came in and backed your own Snapchat series last year called Get Money, which is about being a gig economy worker where you did basically mock tutorials on how to like sell your ex's clothing for cash and funny things like that. Um, I was going to ask you just one question about that was, you know, I read that the Snapchat CEO said that more than half the Gen Z audience in the U S has watched one of Snapchat's original series, which is an interesting quote. Um, are, are you, a, are you a zoomer? I'm not. I'm a millennial. Oh really? Tail end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm on the other end. I'm an elder millennial. Mm. Um, do you think that, like, for example, when you were doing that series, is there a certain way of, the, the, of thinking in terms of gearing the writing towards Gen Z folks? Do you think about that much? Yeah, I mean, that was a huge part of it. So we had the opportunity to pitch to Snapchat. We, it wasn't like I didn't pitch to Comedy Central. I pitched to Snapchat directly. And thankfully, they were just like, they had seen my stuff and they were like, we'd love to work with you. So I was, I pitched this show and then we did a pilot first and then they bought the series. Um, but it was like two ways of thinking because I'm a very, I'm, I don't want to say very dirty, but I'm a pretty dirty comedian. And they're like, 11 year olds are watching this. So like a lot of Jesus. things are like inappropriate, inappropriate, inappropriate. Yeah, sure. But also, you're doing the slides. So you have to, long pieces of dialogue or monologues are too long. So it's like you right. have to write in a short form, like joke after at each slide. I want to have a joke or something, you know, if it wasn't pushing the story forward, it had to be a joke, which I guess is what they say in normal writing, but it had to be so tight because I learned so much in the, after the pilot, I was like, Oh, when we shot it, I was like, Oh, this is too long piece of dialogue. So it was easier. I'm glad we shot the pilot because it was easier to see how to write because the chunks of dialogue I did in the pilot were way too long. But the whole time I was working with, so I had to get approved by our producers and Snapchat producers, creative. So two creative notes and Snapchat would always be like, no, (laughs) you can't say that. And they'd be like, let's, and then a lot of it would be like towing the line of what was appropriate. Um, But I think that's good for me because I am so used to leaning on leaning dirty and I couldn't in this situation. 
but I, I mean, it, it just came out at a bad time. It came out at the beginning of quarantine and they had it only on the fir- front page for a day. Um, and it did end up doing, I think better on Instagram, but hmm. like I, from what I could see, but, um, you know, I didn't get paid a lot of money for that. It was like not a big, a, a huge chunk of money. And so, but I was just going to say, like, speaking of money, my DP on that, I found out was the DP on Nomadland. Uh, holy shit. Yeah. Weird. And so my director was like, did you know she went? And I knew she was going to do something. And I was like, I wonder how much she got paid on that movie because she did not get paid a lot. And she's amazing. She was the best DP, I mean, I'd ever worked with. I was like, she's insane. Um, but... It was just so crazy to see her go on to that. And I wonder how much she got paid because I'm sure it wasn't a lot. And she's like my age. She might be younger than me. That's incredible. And very sad. Yeah. But also, like, I was like, I mean, she's going to do amazing things. I'm like, (laughs) I hope she remembers me and liked me. I was like. That's one of the things about. That is one of the great takeaways of, like, what we do is that we get to meet really interesting people who uh, and it's all and I I mean I will always remain a big fan of creatives and I it's it's cool to see it's cool to watch what people do and how they develop as artists and things like that and knowing those people personally I think it's I get a charge out of it I think it's cool um you've had a lot of uh viral stuff go viral with your Comedy Central sketches you did a <laughs> a hilarious sketch about someone who the person who has to write the captions for Pornhub videos that was amazing um thanks <laughs> you also do you think do you think with all these venues suffering now because of now first COVID now the Delta variant like I wonder if there there might be a new renaissance of video sketch I think there already is like is I feel happening? like with TikTok and everything else it's like that's how people are blowing up. TikTok, definitely. I don't know that I think about that stuff like it's sketch, but it's definitely, I, I like it. I don't have a highbrow, lowbrow uh, issue or a struck. I, I think I'm, I guess I think more like the three minute sketch, the video sketch, you know, which you've done a fair amount of for, I feel like for Comedy Central. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I feel like, I've been there for three years doing it and my career has grown so much from it, but I just don't know. It's one audience, you know? So it's like, I don't, it's interesting. I just feel like a part of, and I feel so lucky to be a part of Comedy Central, but. When you say it's one audience, you mean it's Comedy Central's audience? Yeah. Like, I don't think like. What does that mean? Does that mean they're, they're kind of older? No, just like, uh, I, I don't know how much I can grow as a, I have to start doing my own stuff on my own channel and build my own brand because yeah, yeah. I feel like all, everyone who's watching Comedy Central has seen my stuff and they n- know my stuff. Whereas like, yeah. I'm not going to get more fans from Comedy Central. I have to kind of grow on my own, which is difficult when I'm doing videos for them. I'm trying to write scripts. I'm auditioning. Like, it's just so much to think about. I have a podcast. It's like, trying to do those internet videos and building my Instagram. And I keep getting told I need to build my Instagram, build my TikTok. And then it's like, okay, but I also have a full-time job. I also have a podcast. I'm also trying to do stand-up. I'm also trying to write scripts. Um, so 
it's hard to know what to focus on. But yeah, with, if stand-up's going away, it's like, I might as well get back into that. I don't know. You had a, um, you had a, a hilarious tweet go viral um, where you said, during the pandemic, you said, if you weren't sure how bad things have gotten, Amazon is out of podcast mics. The, <laughs> <laughs> the tweet currently has... 291,000 likes uh, and then you followed up the next day <laughs> with an announcement of your own podcast um, it seems like your comedy sometimes it feels like it's coming from a place of like poking fun at things that we all do but you definitely also do is that true? yeah it's like how do I know podcast mics on Amazon are sold out because I tried to fucking I was buy looking them for podcast <laughs> yeah and it was like so now with my auditions that I send I send Vimeo links and in the notes I'll write like I really need this please pick me <laughs> like, I'm alone in my apartment I need more notoriety Just and like un- my unabashing. agents haven't s- yeah, my agents haven't said anything yet, so I don't know if they don't notice, or... I just think it's funny to be like, how desperate is it that I'm literally in my living room being like, hi, I'm Hannah, and I have chest acne. Like, it's, like, so pathetic, but yet I want to do it. And it's the same thing with the podcast. Like, I was like, how how self-centered is someone that they want to talk about themselves? And then I'm yep, like, well, yep. fuck, I don't have stand-up. Like, I want an outlet to tell jokes and talk about my life yeah. and... I think so too. And I think, yeah, it is, it is a, it is a, um, it is a journey of self doing a podcast. It could be selfish. I, for sure. I do think, I remember hearing a thing about actors want to be anything but themselves and comedians just want to be themselves. Um, and I think like, I kind of get that, but I also feel like, you know, for some of us, it's like, yeah, I kind of want to do both. Yeah, I like, I really love act. Like I did Baron Brown a year after I graduated, Baron Brown Studios. It's in Santa Monica. Oh yeah. Okay. And I did like their first year program of Meisner and I really loved it. And my, actually my acting teacher was like, if you're an amazing actor, you can do comedy. Like that's why Robert De Niro is so funny is because he's just such a good actor and you can just play that part so great. Maybe, um, yeah. But I agree with what you're saying with the stand-up thing. But um, I love acting. Um, but I also, it's so cathartic to like, I was just in a relationship. For example, I was just in a relationship and it went south so fast. And like, I mean, the only joke I have from it is that like, I'm like, I don't want to say he was abusive because he told me I couldn't. Um, and Jesus, I said that funny. on stage. <laughs> Not even as a joke, and that got a big laugh, and I was like, oh, this is, like, nice. I said that genuinely because he did say that, and it's yeah, just, like, yeah. weirdly cathartic to, like, talk about shit and get it out, yeah. um, which I think makes it harder to, like, have a relationship because guys are like, is she going to talk about me? It's like, probably. <laughs> I try <laughs> not to, a- Yeah, I try not to talk too much about my family on here. Uh, I wouldn't I, I'm sure that other people would go really in depth um, but just because I yeah because you do you hear about people that are doing that in their sets who are married and eventually it's like the the, the special comes out where they talk about their divorce <laughs> really just fucking like for me personally like I don't need to be that famous at all I don't give a shit like I would rather like be, I'll be a dad um who appreciates 
brilliant people. Um, I do like, but I totally agree on the the cathartic experience of it. And I love watching comics do it too. I get, uh, it just feels like the best, the only kind of church I've ever found that means anything to me. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I mean, when I was dating the guy, he just got very controlling. So that's why I'm like, I don't care now. But he would be like, can you not put that in your podcast? Can you not talk about that? And I would, I would never talk about something. And I didn't really talk about him at all because I wanted to have a relationship. And it ended for other reasons. But um, when bad, I guess, yeah, when bad situations happen, it's just kind of nice to not feel so alone. Like um, last year I got herpes because a guy lied to me. And I was so embarrassed. And I like thought my life was over. And I started talking about it on stage. And the amount of people who have messaged me being like, yo, I saw you at the show. Like, thanks for talking about it. I have it too. Like, right. Yeah. It's so nice to talk about because I'm like, it's not that fucking big of a deal. And like, <laughs> it's everyone's crazy. Like, and and just not feeling so alone in a situation like herpes where it's like literally so many people have it. But because we're so like, I called the suicide hotline when I found out because I was I thought my life was over and it's such not a big deal. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so even talking about it is like nice because I'm like, who cares? <laughs> You know, and kind of owning who I am and owning the shit that happens is it yeah. feels empowering. Yeah. And I think like it, I think about it a lot in terms of like what is going to be what is the difference between speaking out something that people need to hear? Or that somebody out there in the audience could feel like they're completely alone with their thing, with their thing that they're worried about. And then somebody up on that stage says it and lets them know they're not alone and what's healing about that. And then like comedians that just make fun of their wife where it's like it's it's first of all hack secondly yeah like it, it, it's punching i don't know i'm not even i'm not even going there it's just hack and it's not um uh i don't know who it's saving out in the i don't know who that's what the benefit of that is for except that um to just make men more angry yeah, like I feel like uh, I saw this Seth Meyers bit. He was talking about his engagement, and he—it's such a funny bit how he like dropped his wallet in Paris and got down on his knee to pick it up, and his wife thought he was—and it just like talks about how dumb he is. <laughs> but like he does talk about his relationship and his engagement. But you know, I know nothing about his wife. Like it has nothing yeah. to do with her. I mean, she was mad at him, but like rightfully so. He got down on one knee in Paris, <laughs> but and who knows if that's true? But that's just such a it was such a funny um, joke. So I think there are ways to talk about your relationships. But yeah, what is your one of the things I wanted to ask you was: Do you have a bigger? Do you have a bigger project coming up on the horizon? Something you're working on? Um. Well, I was with a production company. We were pitching this live show. But, you know, we've gotten a lot of no's on that. So, <laughs> but I wrote a pilot that I'm pretty, it was the first thing I've written that my manager said was good. Like I wrote a movie, I wrote two pilots before and he was like, these are okay, they're fine. And like, this was like, I think we could sell this. And so we're working on developing that. Um, nice. But, you know, it's like, will that go anywhere? Who knows? But it's something that I'm actually, it's a pro, it's a show that I'm actually very, 
even if it doesn't go anywhere, I'm proud of the script I wrote and I like developing the project. And that, and again, it's like a lot of shit feels like a waste of time. But with that, I don't think we'll feel like a waste of time because it's fulfilling to write and like develop the characters and, you know, map something out. And the amount of stuff yeah. I did before, the amount of dumb sketches I did before I got to Comedy Central, like everything feels like a waste of time. And then when you're in the seat doing it, you're like, I'm so happy I wasted all that time. Because that was oh, a waste that of time. for sure. Well, that's not. Yeah, I agree. That's not. I wouldn't call it waste of time either. I think like you're, yeah, you're learning how to be. Sometimes like it's like I feel like I learned how to be bad before I could be better. Mm-hmm. I remember once I pitched. I pitched. A, I pitched this as a as a half hour for Comedy Central. I went in and met with um, a bunch of people, and. Uh, <laughs> It was funny because like the, when I came in, they were like, oh, they were like, it's just you. And I was like, yeah, it's just what <laughs> they were like. They, they wanted like a sketch group, you know, and like so I think that was like one thing I was like, yeah, did, man, no, it's just me. And I think my idea is like my character is not famous, but his friends are. And like, that's funny. It's like Curb. But like the main guy is not Larry David. And they were like, OK, <laughs> but um, but. I'm glad I wrote all those half hours for the thing that I'll eventually write that hopefully will get made. But, um, but I think, I I think it's maybe a better producer generally all the stuff that I did as like, you know, things that I've written and then gone out and shot as a sketch. Like I feel pretty good as a producer now. Yeah. That's it. I've realized like I've been looking into applying to Columbia for directing because I've been watching a lot of Dave on, on FX. Yeah, for who, I'm watching on Hulu. Yeah, yeah. And Why does he go just, to? What's the Columbia connection? Well, because I just think the directing on the show is so good. Oh, and got I was it. looking yeah. at schools in New York I could go to, and just Columbia seems to have a good program for it. But it does, it's just yeah. so expensive, and it's like I feel a little old to be going to grad school. <laughs> I also failed ceramics at USC, so my GPA sucks, and I didn't graduate <laughs> on time. Wait, wait a minute. Your, your ceramics <laughs> class brought your entire GPA down? Yes, because it was like my senior year, I was supposed to be a screenwriting minor, but they release all the classes to majors first. So they were like, in order to complete your minor, you'd have to stay a semester after. So I was like, not doing that. <laughs> so a minor's not worth that, whatever. So I just right. took like photo, my senior year was like photo, ceramics, all this shit. And my boyfriend and I took ceramics and we had a bet like who would get a better grade on the ceramics. And I was like, obviously I'm going to win. I ended up getting in the stand-up competition and my teacher said I could miss class, but then like failed me. So I did pass fail. And that oh, was my an last one. Yeah. And she wouldn't email me back. Like I had to go through the board at USC to like get my diploma because she because if you get a D, you technically fail. And she, the way she marked me off is I was two, maybe 1% from an, a C minus. And uh, so basically, I had to take a D and not the pass fail to get the credits in order to graduate. So it just brought, it just kind of plummeted my GPA. Because I was like an AB student. Yeah, you were A's in high school, you were AB's in, in college. Yeah, I think I got a C plus in art history. Like art's just, you know, art is subjective. And I <laughs> apparently visual art or just, you know, that world is not mine. And that's fine. I had, I was, I was 
more straight A's in college than I was in high. High school was hard. So high school, I was like a B plus average guy. But in college, I was doing very well. It, the thing that brought my – and I double majored in two useless degrees. Well, I like my drama degree. The other one was English literature. Um, but my GPA got brought down by my dance classes. <laughs> I got to be For- honest. I believe it. <laughs> I was just like a big fat green bean just doing my, I didn't hate it. I tried, but I had two years of like ballet tap and jazz and it just, it crushed me. Um, well, finally, where can, where can people find you online? Um, I'm at Hans Dickey, H-A-N-S-D-I-C-K-I-E on Instagram and Twitter and I have a podcast called Don't Tell Mom where I pretty much talk shit. And that's it. Cool. Nice. Well, uh, Hannah, thank you so much for doing this. No, thanks for having me. This is cool. It's cool. When you asked me, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Because um, it's just weird that I was in. I don't even know how many years ago that was. That was in your class. Yeah. We've, I've known uh, and since followed your, you know, your, your awesome doings for for some time. I just, I'm just very excited for you. Very happy for your success. And, um, yeah. Same and I wish you. you. Thank you. And I wish you the best. Thanks. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, I want to say thanks a bunch. Give us a subscribe and those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our merch for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle at things are going great for me. Stay tuned because we've got seven more incredible episodes in season two premiering every Thursday, including interviews with Sarah Levy, Jim O'Hare, Corbin Reed, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, Joan Ford, Madison Shepard, and Shelley Bala, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Sierra Hauser. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. The Godfather is a Christmas movie. Think about it. Don't think about it that hard. See you next time.